So I'm gonna share a few things about how this is gonna go so that everybody is on the same page in terms of how, because this is gonna also go to YouTube. So I am actually going to hand the control of the stream over to Jared. Jared is actually going to serve as the moderator for this. And I'm basically a guest on my own stream. So he is going to be the one that selects the questions. He is going to be the one that highlights certain questions from chat. And he is, I'm going to basically answer each question first. Jared is welcome to provide more if he would like to and provide some of his own answer and context. Uh, that's no problem to me. For those who do not know, Jared on air, first of all, he streams on Twitch. So make sure you go follow him if you don't already. Jared has a. Do you want me to do my own intro? Yeah, I mean, that's fine that too. That's going to. Easier for you. Uh, yeah, okay. Go well, for it. For those of you who are new here, welcome. Glad to have you here. Uh, some of you may have heard my voice before on Friday night with the fellas, but now you get to also see my face. Um, but I. My name's Jared. You can call me Jared. Um, I go by Jared on air online, uh, pretty much across all social media, but I stream on Twitch under this same thing. I do not run a mental health based channel uh even though i do have a master's degree in marriage and family therapy i currently am not licensed uh but that is because i am not working anywhere uh which could change uh in the near future um but i do have i would say some expertise on stuff like this um so don't think it's just some guy coming in here giving you advice uh based off of like life experiences only the reason why Ryan and I know each other are because we met each other in a PhD program, which he went on to finish, and which I didn't because PhD was not for me. Um, but I am happy to be here. Very excited to do this. I will. I'm gonna leave most of this up to him. Um, I will maybe add some stuff in, or I'll do some prompting if I feel like there are more things that Ryan can speak about. But I'm going to be primarily running this focused on Ryan, but kind of. Knowing our dynamic, I have a feeling he's going to ask me my take anyways. Uh, so I'm, I'm prepared to give it. <laughs> I just like hearing what you have to say because you usually have cool additions to whatever I say. But uh, And if you are happening to stumble across this video on YouTube and you don't know who I am, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in two states in Nevada and Illinois. I am the president of a group practice and I've been a therapist for nine and a half years, going on 10. And I work with couples and non-monogamous relationships as well. It's a specialty of mine that I've had the pleasure of working with many configurations over the years. So Jared and I had an idea that it would be cool to do these types of Q and A's as more of an official capacity so that you can ask questions about relationships to a licensed couple and family therapist. And it's free to do. Uh, I'm gonna put a disclaimer in though, which is that I realize that some folks are going to want to ask very subjective questions. Be just because I am a therapist does not mean that I am your therapist. So there are certain questions that Jared may filter out or that we may have to change a little bit so that I can answer in a more broad sense. Please do not take offense to that. I'm doing that because my goal always as a streamer is to make sure that we are doing this as ethically and responsibly as we can. And I, so I can't really answer subjective experiences or do assessments or anything like that. I can't ask follow-up questions to other than a clarification question to anything that people ask. But we wanna make sure that this is as educational for folks as possible, that the diversity of questions touches on as many things as we possibly can. And we are gonna do more of these in the future. So I hope that you all will hang out for as long as you can. And if you're watching the VOD, I appreciate that you are watching the VOD. Make sure that you follow me on Twitch and subscribe to me on YouTube. So I'm excited to do this. It's gonna be a lot of fun. All right, Jared, the stream's yours, man. Let's do this. All right, then I'm going to, I'm going to throw this in here. Actually, real quick, before you do that, um, before you do that, people might want to know maybe a little bit of like what perspective I'm coming from with some of this stuff. Like I am a licensed couple and family therapist, but 
I use various theories to inform the work that I do with relationships. I also, my PhD is in human development and that included relationship development. I have taught about individual development and relational development at the graduate level. And so all of my answers are from either a theoretical perspective, my own experience as a therapist, or like they're not just like Ryan's opinion on things. I am, I, everything that I say in response to these things is going to be informed from something as opposed to just me taking shots in the dark. So if there is a question that pops up that I can't answer, I will be, uh, I will be very forthcoming about that. But I do, I am coming from a space of expertise here as opposed to just talking about it. So I just wanted to give a little bit of a foundation if folks haven't heard me answer questions like this before. Oh, that's pretty good. I guess, I mean, sure, I'll give, I'm like, I'll give you my background, too. Um, I like to practice a combination of strategic and narrative therapies. Uh, and I, uh, I was taught in a systemic view of therapy. Um, so I tend to consider everything that is going on in the situation and how that can have an impact on what is going on currently. So that is what I tend to focus on and how I tend to approach things, if you're curious of, like, where my response to things uh, comes from. I didn't even think about uh, I didn't think about putting that in. Oh, this is the other thing. Since I'm putting some of these words or some of these questions in chat myself, I'm leaving who asks them off of it. Um, and it's not because I don't want like your name or anything like there. It's just kind of the nature of me asking it. So I'm not going to say so and so ask this. I'm simply just going to put the question in there and answer it. Um, wanted to make sure that was clear. Cool. All right, so let's roll. It's loaded up. Uh, I'm gonna put it up here, and I left the bullet in there, and I realized it. Uh, I took them out though. Question one: I always feel like I have set my expectations to be reasonable, but a lot of people say they are too high when looking for relationships. How do I know if my expectations are too high? This is a good starter. Um, <laughs> so your expectations are your expectations. I think it is entirely reasonable to have high expectations for a relationship. In fact, I would argue that it's healthy. You are better off skewing in the direction of high expectations as opposed to low expectations. I'm not a big believer in lowering the bar to expand your pool, but there is a consequence to doing that. So the more detailed you create your expectations for a potential partner or partners in a relationship, the more you narrow the pool of potential partners down. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can sometimes be frustrating because it will get people into a position where they start to question their expectations. Now, it could be that there are certain aspects of your expectations that are so specific that you are shooting yourself in the foot and that there is some need to expand and diversify your expectations. But that doesn't mean that you make your expectations less healthy. So like, I would say general good expectations to have in a relationship are that you will have open and honest communication even when it's difficult to talk about whatever you need to talk about. I think it's reasonable to expect validation for whatever emotional experience you're having in a given point in time. I think it's realistic to expect that you will not only have a sense of connection, but also a sense of autonomy in your relationship to be able to do things on your own and that other friendships and relationships are tolerable in the relationship. Like Those are really primary things that you want to look for in a relationship. And you'll notice that none of those things are traits of a person. Those are processes. A lot of people get really boxed into certain traits that they're looking for, like hair color or eye color or race or something like that. and while those preferences are can be important because it is important to be attracted to who you are seeking out sometimes those can overly narrow a pool in a way that you really don't want so maintaining high healthy expectations for processes of a relationship is important if you notice that your pool is so narrowed that you just simply can't find anybody it doesn't mean you need to settle but it may mean that you do need to expand into trying some things out at the outset and then feeling out that relationship going forward. As far as what your friends say about your expectations, who cares? Um, I, I really don't think other people should dictate the expectations you have for your relationship. That's for you to decide. 
I also think it's okay to talk to a therapist about your expectations for relationships because sometimes people have very unhealthy expectations for relationships based on the representation of relationships they had in their life. And so if you notice that your expectations seem to be low and that you're inviting in a lot of harmful dynamics into your relationships, I would recommend working with somebody to help recalibrate that. But I don't think there's a such thing as expectations that are too high. I think there's a such thing as overly narrowing your pool. Hmm. It's an interesting way to phrase that. Yeah, I mean, because... And that also, like, there are other factors that narrow a pool, right? Like, the older you get, the more your pool narrows because people start to couple and they start to commit to certain relationships. Like, there's there's stuff like that that also contributes to these types of things. But if the three things that I listed off are things that you have very high on your priority list for a relationship, they should stay there. And But you may have to feel some stuff out. Sometimes people will create very high expectations as a way to avoid the anxiety of entering and starting relationships. And that's not necessarily uh, good either. So it's okay to invite in some different dynamics and then feel it out as you go. Awesome. I think you, I mean, I think you covered all those bases, honestly. I don't, I don't really have anything to add to that. I think that was a pretty solid response. I will say that um, just as like a final period on this is, and this is a, kind of a meta conversation to an extent, but your expectations will drive your perception of the experiences you have. So if you expect healthy dynamics in your relationship and you don't experience them, that will create what's called aversive arousal or anxiety. And that is sometimes a signal that maybe this isn't gonna work, particularly if that's patterned over time. But that the inverse is also true. If you expect poor dynamics, if you expect that, or, and if you think it's okay for you to be like berated or for somebody to exert a bunch of power over you or whatnot, at, that also can become a form of bias where if somebody treats you well, you may actually experience anxiety because you weren't expecting to be treated well. So it is also important to think about in a general sense what your expectations are, not just for somebody else, but for yourself in a relationship and making sure that you're able to see healthy experiences within a frame of this is good and I deserve this. I, am, I do actually have a question because this is something that you and I have talked about a few times and uh, I feel like it's kind of key to this question where it says a lot of people a lot of people say they're too high. How would you recommend somebody deal with like that constant barrage of messaging from others about how you feel about your relationships? You mean like when your friends basically keep telling you their perspective on your relationships even when you don't want it? I'm thinking about it like I have a very specific example in mind. So like with this question, I'm thinking about I have no idea if this is what the person had in mind, but I'm thinking about, you know, maybe you are looking for a relationship and you're getting pressure from, say, your parents. They're, they're like, oh, why aren't you married yet? Or why oh, haven't yeah. you found a partner yet? And their reason to you for why you haven't found it is because, oh, well, your your expectations are too high. You're, you're wanting too much. Like, how do you deal with that kind of messaging on your end? You stand up for yourself. You say like, I, because really what that comes down to is people thinking they know what's best for you and perhaps they have their own agenda. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that like, you know, I see that maybe you're disappointed that I'm not married or you don't, you're not approving of the types of relationships I'm in, but I know that like what I deserve and I have thought through this I perhaps have experiences that have driven me to have these expectations for my relationship. And it wouldn't be healthy for me to settle for something just because I'm supposed to be married at this point. Like there are a lot of people that absorb societal and familial expectations to their detriment when they enter relationships. Or they look at all their friends getting married or having children and they think that's what they're supposed to do. One of the things that really, I think, bums me out the most about talking with people, particularly in their like 20s and even into their 30s about relationships, is that they operate off of a series of supposed tos, as opposed to critically thinking about what it is that they specifically want. What are their values? What are you looking for? 
Is children something you actually want or is it something you just think you're supposed to have? Is marriage something that you actually want to commit to? Is a monogamous relationship something you want to be in? Um, or are you open to other dynamics and you're just afraid of them because what other people have told you? So I think it's, a, it's about boundaries. It's saying, you know what? I don't appreciate that you continue to exert your opinion on my relationships. I don't appreciate it. If you continue to do that, it's going to be harder and harder for me to engage with you. So I ask that you respect my decision making, that you respect that I know what's best for me and that I am in control of this. And I think that's different than people saying things to you like, this relationship seems to be harming you. If you have a lot of people that are telling you that a relationship seems to be harmful to you, I think that's, particularly people you trust, I think that's worthy of looking at. But people telling you that your expectations are too high for a relationship, I, I really think is worthy of ignoring. Or taking with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think if it's, I think if it's a, a message that you're constantly getting, then it's usually worth further exploration. But if that further exploration simply boils down to like, my family is just nosy or my friends are just annoying, then that's fine <laughs> and you can ignore it. Yeah, yeah friends uh, and health, healthy friends and family will respect your boundaries. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, I'm I'm good to move on to yeah, the next go one. For if it. You are. Yep. All right, next one. How much should you be a complete person before starting a relationship? Oh, man. Okay, so I, uh, full disclosure, I saw this one before we went live tonight, and I was hoping you were going to pull it up. Uh, and I'm going to try not to get too energetic on this one, but there is no such thing as being a complete person. In fact, I would argue that you are only a complete person when you die because you made it all the way through your own life cycle. You, there, the, we have this idea that you're supposed to like achieve this certain threshold and then once you've achieved that threshold, you've made it and you no longer develop and that's not how it works. You develop all the way through your lifespan. Relationships can be part, if relationships are something you're interested in, relationships can be part of your development as a person. In fact, relationships can actually be quite reparative for certain wounds that come from earlier on in your relationship, in your life that you may consider to be contributing to your incompleteness as a person. So I hate the entire premise of this question. Now, do I think that you need to be able to see yourself as worthy of a healthy relationship and the dynamics that come along with it before you enter relationships? Yes. I don't think that entering relationships with the explicit purpose of repairing certain things that have happened to you is a good idea. So I do think that there's a level of self-insight into who you are and your values and your desires that is important. I think it's important to also understand what you bring to relationships at the point in time of your development that you're bringing things to them. But no, this idea that you have to figure yourself out before you're ever going to enter a meaningful relationship is way too cut and dry. And in fact, I have seen people who really the impetus for them making a lot of amazing changes in their life was being in the right relationship. So know enough about yourself and your values know where you are developmentally, accept the fact that you will never be a complete person before you enter a relationship and use every relationship engagement, whether it's dating or a long-term relationship or whatnot, as information that informs either the latter stages of that relationship or subsequent relationships. You only become more complete the more experiences you have and the more you diversify those experiences. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I haven't heard anybody talk about, like, this concept in a while. The only thing that I think about whenever something like this did come up is that thinking of yourself as a complete person is kind of weird in the sense that complete means that something is finished. I've You said it in a bit more of a, a final way, if you will. Uh, but, like, you're going to change. Mm-hmm. And so you have to also be prepared for that change. Like there are certain things in your life that right now you think that's just who you are and it's never going to be any different. 
and that just is not always the case uh with life i mean you can take exactly what we're going through right now i'm sure there are a lot of people who had a plan for what their life was going to be like in you know march uh 2022 but then something happened and you had to change um there's certain things that you had planned in life that you couldn't keep going so I think accepting that change is also a natural part of life in yourself is a very important part there as well, I'd say. One of the most key components of all of the development-focused classes that I took or readings that I've had or whatnot is that it's always was said in the double negative, you're never not developing, which is to say you are always developing. And development is not often a spontaneous process. It's something that happens over time. And so, yeah, that, that change, a lot of people are very scared of change. There are some people that think that they need to be complete so that a relationship won't change them. And I'm here to tell you, you are in a, for a very poor experience in a relationship if, you, if you're not open to that relationship having influence on you because that doesn't have to be scary. If you're with the right person or people, those relationships can actually enrich who you are and bring certain things out in you as opposed to, you know, stymie who you are as an individual. You, you're, if you're in a relationship that completely sucks away your autonomy, you're in a bad relationship. You should have autonomy and in some individual things that you do and are interested in that are separate from your relationship that your relationship can acknowledge and accept, but also don't have to constantly involve who you're with. Yeah, I agree. Good. It's a good uh, question, and it's one that I think a lot of people in chat probably could resonate with. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm good to roll on the next one. Go for it. Anything yeah, else to add? Yep. All right. What do I do if my girlfriend keeps rolling her eyes at me and doesn't say I love you to me every time I say Do you love me? She doesn't respond and keeps knocking me off. What do I do? Okay, so I have to tread slightly carefully on this question because it's a bit of a subjective experience, but I think many folks can probably relate to this type of thing. Um, communication is the most essential aspect of a healthy relationship. Like, I really can't emphasize that enough. Communication is arguably the most effective thing humans do in any capacity at all. So it it's, stands to reason that it works in relationships like this. Being dismissed by a person you are in a meaningful relationship with hurts a lot. And I think sometimes it can be difficult to say that to a person of, hey, when you say these things to me, or if you roll your eyes at me when I say something that's vulnerable, I feel dismissed and I don't appreciate that. And I was wondering if we could talk about either where that's coming from or why that's happening. And if that person is not open to that relationship, to, to that conversation, there's a good chance that that person's level of investment in the relationship is potentially not equivalent or in the ballpark of the person who's initiating it, in which case there's a bigger conversation about the relationship itself. I think when people become evasive in their communication and relationships, that can be very toxic to a relationship and can lead to a very strong pursuit distance dynamic that rarely is healthy for a relationship to have. So to me, it comes down to in any type of situation like this, it's speaking directly to the process of what's happening and to your experience of what's going on using I messages. I feel dismissed. And also don't use the word like or that after the word feel. If you do that, you're not gonna say a feeling. So you say, I feel blank when you blank. And I was wondering if we could work together to figure out why that's happening. You make it a collaborative process. And if that person is not willing to collaborate, you can say, I'm, I don't want to do anything else or talk about anything else until you're ready. So I'm going to go do my thing and you let me know when you're ready to talk about this. Right. Or if that person just straight up isn't willing, then that means there's probably some bigger things going on in the dynamic of the relationship. And perhaps it either needs the attention of a therapist or perhaps maybe it's not going to be sustainable and needs to end. And I will say in line with this question, because I think it's a really nice way to open the door into this, literally the most uh, problematic dynamic in a relationship that literally when I am a therapist, I put the brakes on everything else to attend to if it comes out is apathy. 
if which means I don't care. So if a if I'm sitting in front of a, a let's say a couple and one of the people just does not get agitated by anything and is just like yeah I don't care. 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 That is going to destroy the relationship if people do not feel a sense of engagement. So whenever I see it nothing else matters. I have to attend to the apathy. And so if you are perceiving apathy or if you're becoming apathetic yourself in a relationship, it doesn't mean you're at the point of no return, but that needs to be attended to immediately. Uh, I would like you to clear up some things uh, that I think may not be as clear as they could for a non-therapist. So the right. first thing is, um, what is the pursuit distance dynamic you're talking about? So it's a very common dynamic that we see. I'm going to use a couple relationship, but this can happen in poly relationships too, but a couple is easier for me to illustrate. So basically what it is, is you will have one person, when things become adverse in a relationship, like if there's conflict or tension or whatnot, there's the need to communicate. But people have different orientations to the anxiety of that tension. And usually how this dynamic happens is there's one person who tries to pull away and create distance from the anxiety and the tension and pursues some of their own individualism or autonomy. And then there's often another person who is so anxious about that that they chase after that person because they perceive that distance is threatening to the relationship itself. And so what we see is person pulls away, other person pursues. Person who's been pulling away sees the pursuit as threatening because it's like, just leave me alone for a second so I can process this and they take another step and then a chase. And it's what we call a positive feedback loop where that each one escalates the other. So as the person pursues, the person who wants distance feels cramped and tries to get more distance, which threatens the person who is trying to pursue. It's the most common and classic dynamic that we see in couples because when those types of relationships work, they're great. But when they don't, it turns into that dynamic. And the way that as a therapist, we try to intervene in that kind of dynamic is we actually have to get the distancer to turn in first, uh, which is, or to at least not bail. And that can be very difficult, but what we also do is we hold the pursuer back from grabbing onto that. So it's we hold the distancer in just long enough to acknowledge what's going on and we keep the pursuer from cramping the person so that there's like a nice operational space there and then we can start to collaboratively work together. Uh, a lot of people think that the pursuer needs to turn back first, but that doesn't encourage collaboration and connectedness because now you have two people sitting on opposite ends of the corner, like of the ring. So what we need is for the, the distancer to stay and hang in there a little bit, lean in, and then we make sure that the pursuer doesn't overly lean into it because they perceive that person as being available to them. Okay. And the second thing is, what's an I statement and why are they useful? So I statements are when you start a sentence literally with the word I. And the reason that we use that is because you need to take accountability for your own emotional experience. It also is disarming from a relational perspective because it's vulnerable. So when I, if I say you're pissing me off, what you've done is you've taken the blame for your emotional experience and you've thrown it onto something that the other person is doing and they are inherently going to defend themselves because you've basically shot an arrow at them. If you say, I feel angry right now because of what, because of how you just, in, like how you just engaged with me, you are suggesting that they're having an influence on you, but you're taking accountability for your emotional experience. And what that does is it provides the other person an opportunity to validate that emotional experience because there's a difference between validation and agreement. A lot of people think that in validating somebody else, you have to agree with their perspective, and that is not true. You can validate a person being angry while disagreeing with why they're angry. And it's important for us to take accountability for our own emotional experiences so the other person can attend to it in a consistent, reliable, and validating way and so that we can get into problem solving jointly as opposed to getting into a blame game. Um, I'm curious how you're going to answer this because uh, it just feels like it's taking me back to 
grad school, I feel like one of my professors right now. But like, <laughs> what's an example of a a quote unquote bad I statement? Like, when does an I statement fall out of being an I statement? <laughs> uh, when it is used to def well, I gotta think of an example of this. It's I think it's hard to have bad I statements. Like, I think you have to really try to have a bad I statement. Um, but something like... So, okay. So an I state... Okay, I'm going to have to explain this, though. <laughs> okay, so an I statement that is reflective of a projection is going to cause problems. And for those who do not know what projection is, projection is when you are making an assumption about something or you perceive yourself in a certain way and you assume that the other person shares that perception and or that they are coming from a certain space as opposed to having their own reasoning for doing what they're doing. And so if you say something like, well, I feel like you don't trust me. That's not, well, first of all, it's not a feeling because you put the word like after the word feel, but you are putting a perception and an assumption on that person instead of owning your, if you could say something like, I'm confused and unsure where you're coming from when you say that to me, and that scares me, that's an effective I statement. I think you're being an asshole, or I think you don't trust me, or, you know, because again, you can't really say I feel and then emotion word and not take accountability for it. It's when you add the extra words that makes it a perception and a thought that you start to throw and sling onto somebody else and it creates problematic statements because now a person is having to defend against something that isn't true, but you think it is because of your, you're not stepping out of your own experience and then it just creates havoc in conflict. Is that answer your question it does um i i statements are always really interesting to me they make me want to go like further um because like with the with that example that you just used i feel like you don't trust me mm -hmm. i want to know because like that 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 is a valid way to be in a relationship like you can feel like your partner does not trust you but how what is an effective way to communicate that across the table like even if because like i do also i also think that there is a little bit of too strong of an emphasis on using i statements because there's other ways in which you can communicate with a person um so i'm curious how you would get that across and what you can would consider to be an effective way well i would flip that statement i'm worried you don't trust me is different because even in the statement you gave me you said i feel like you don't trust me that's a perception if you really wanted to make that an actual statement what you're saying is my perception of you and the narrative that i've created is that you don't trust me so it's taking my narrative and assuming that that's your narrative instead of saying i'm worried that you don't trust me is taking accountability for the worry that comes along with it it allows that person to attend to the worry and then it opens you up because you've, you're, because the worry has been validated. It opens you up to hear their perspective on where they're coming from when they say, I hear that you're worried. It makes sense. I know that I've been a bit cryptic lately in my messaging to you or whatever. And so I'd like to work together to help you understand why I am interacting with you in the way that I am. Knowing that you're worried, I want to appreciate that you shared that you're worried with me. So it's taking accountability for whatever emotional experience you have instead of and giving a person an opportunity to respond instead of shoveling it up. What are some red flags that people should look for in the early stages of a new relationship that maybe don't seem so obvious slash aren't talked enough, talked about enough? Um, one that I think that isn't talked about enough is isolating behaviors. So, um, not all isolation leads to abuse. I don't want to make a generalization here, but something that I have seen, if I think retrospectively on like relationships that I saw when I was like in high school and college and stuff, but also just relationships I've worked with professionally. You hear this a lot in working with teenagers, but also with people in their early 20s. Like if it's exciting to be in the initial stages of a relationship, the honeymoon period is a real thing. 
it's it happens it lasts a few months and it's one of the most exciting times in a relationship and it's usually marked by people saying i want to spend all my time as possible with this person because i just they're new and they're interesting and i'm figuring them out and that's okay that's healthy that that that's all right however sometimes because that moment in a relationship is so exciting it can be used to isolate a person out from their other relationships and create barriers between them and i think a red flag for me that that you may not notice up front is when you start to notice that your other relationships that you've cultivated over years start to fall by the wayside and you aren't engaged with them and you're even pushed to stay away from them whether it's out of like jealousy or whatever it may be you should always be able to engage with your support systems whether that's friends or family or whatnot and if a person even early on in a relationship perceives other healthy relationships in your life as threatening to your relationship that you're trying to cultivate, you should get out. Um, because even if that person doesn't mean badly, like even if they're doing it subconsciously and they're not actually trying to like abuse you or anything like that, that is still a very problematic dynamic. So it is, it's easy in the early stages of a relationship for that not to be obvious because you're so excited about being with that person. But if you are even playfully meant to create a guilt narrative around hanging out with your friends on a Friday instead of the person that you're dating and we're seeing four other nights that week, that can be red flaggy because it's an attempt to sort of like take some ownership of you in that. So that to me is the biggest one that I think leads to the most destructive patterns later on in a relationship. And so that one is like, boom, huge red flag for me, isolation. Uh, I think another one is, I mean, there's like the obvious ones that are like, you know, power and control and like, being like berating or abusive and stuff like that. But you're asking, this is person's asking more about like uh, more subtle ones. Isolation would be the big one. And I think, uh, oh, and I think another one would be excessive reassurance seeking uh, in like from you in the relationship. So like, so, I think it is important for people to have some understanding of who they are when they engage with relationships. Obviously, as we talked about, you learn as you go throughout your life. But I think sometimes when people can't self-soothe themselves about the anxieties that come with the early part of a relationship and they consistently pursue that person for, you know, do you like me back? Uh, you know, I noticed you didn't, you know, I noticed you didn't text me back within 15 minutes. Are we okay? Like that kind of like excessive reassurance seeking of is the relationship okay can also be kind of a red flag because it often shows that that person hasn't yet learned how to develop a sense of safety and security in themselves as separate from that relationship and coming on that strong can I think sometimes be indicative of problematic things down the line. I also just, and I'd be curious what your thoughts on this are, Jared, if you wanna share. Something that has really stood out to me over the years is that if you have this, there's this, so there's this voice in people's heads that is like unshakable sometimes. Like it's the one that's like way deep down there that no matter what you try to do to convince it otherwise, it keeps telling you something. And sometimes that voice will pop up early on in a relationship, whether it's something like, you know, I'm really not that attracted to this person or, you know, I don't really think I like hanging out with their family or we're really not interested in any of the same things and I'm going to have to work my ass off to do a lot of stuff I don't want to do. Sometimes people will override that voice significantly early on in a relationship and that becomes a problem throughout their relationship. Um, I have talked to folks who, you know, the first couple times they had sex with somebody in their relationship, they really didn't enjoy it and they were not sexually compatible and they were like, okay, whatever, it's not a big deal, we'll figure it out. And it just nags 
and then it just becomes a problem later on in their relationship because they never really attended to that. I, I'm not a huge act on your intuition guy, but there are these moments where when that voice pops up, if it becomes really loud and you're really having to work hard to suppress it, that's a red flag. No, yeah, no, I agree. I think in that same vein, I don't, I think, how do I phrase this? One red flag for you is enough. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. You don't need to hit a threshold of red flags or a threshold of concerns before you should feel justified in leaving a relationship. I think that's something that people kind of try and quantify Yep. Or they're like, oh, I don't like this thing, but, you know, everything else is okay. So, you know, I'll just push through it. But if that thing that you don't like is a really, really big thing, then that should be enough for you to say, all right, cool, I'm out. And one, I don't know, this is this is going to sound probably maybe kind of harsh to some people, um, but it is just kind of how I view the world with relationships and especially now um i think because of certain circumstances and how we have to date i think it's very easy for us to forget how many people there are in the world and so we zero in on the one person that we think we are going to be compatible with because we're worried about not being compatible with others mm. and I would say that is something that you should look out for um, because if you have this voice in your head that says, I'm not going to find anybody else or there's not that many people out there for me, so I'm going to ignore this one red flag because otherwise I'm going to be alone, uh, I would watch out for that because um, it's just, I mean, it's really easy to get in that frame of mind, but it's just simply not the case. I think, I think like from like a scientific perspective, yep. I think parts of the world are literally overpopulated uh so don't worry there's somebody out there for you uh but it's really really easy to get stuck in that frame of mind so one one flag for you if is enough if you see one and you don't like it you're allowed to say hey i don't i don't know if i can see this moving forward um so i think i think it's best if we stop now you don't have to do it like that it's not necessarily the best way to break up with someone but you get what i'm saying well, off of what you just said there's two things that came to mind the first one is any reason is a good enough reason to end a relationship. Literally any reason that you feel compelled to end your current relationship is good enough reason to end that relationship. Um, second is, I would say another red flag that I it is unfortunate to me that I have to lump this into the not so obvious because I think it's indicative of a wider issue is if a person doesn't respect your boundaries immediately, and they tr continually push against clearly stated boundaries that you have, massive red flag. Your boundaries always, but even particularly at the outset of a relationship, should be respected completely. And the only type of resistance that you should ever experience to your boundaries should be curiosity about them. Um, it's okay for people to ask about a certain boundary that you have. Like if you're like, you know what, I'm not ready to do a certain sexual thing yet, or I'm not ready to introduce you to my family yet. It's okay to be curious about that and to wonder why that boundary is the case. But that if somebody tries to blow past them or guilt trip you into setting, laying them down, you should never, you are in control of your boundaries. You should never have somebody attempt to take control of your boundaries for you. And sometimes that happens early on in relationships and people think that's just what's supposed to happen because you're dating. No. Your boundaries are super important and they need to be maintained at all times. And you are in control of those boundaries. Don't ever let somebody take that away from you. If anybody ever tries to take your boundaries away from you, you should bail immediately. It's interesting. Like, I think we, I think we like kind of frame this a little bit more towards say romantic relationship questions. But I think with this particular question in mind, uh, this also is very important to friendships yeah. um so if you see like a red flag in a person that's like you know a little uh, i don't know how i feel about that 
it's totally fine to no longer engage with them in a friendship. And uh, I, I, I wanted to make that kind of clear because like there are certain people in your life that you'll probably have to engage with no matter what, say a colleague at work or something like that. Uh, if they have a red flag for you, then you don't have to be their friend. You you be their coworker and that's it. And you don't engage any further than that. And that is totally, totally fine. But this also absolutely applies to friendships. Ending a friendship for any reason is also very valid. Um, you don't have to feel guilty if you decide you don't want to hang out with a person. If, if you decide you don't want to like text a person on a regular basis or anything like that. Um, it works for those as well. Yep. Nobody in the entire world, literally nobody, other than your child if you're a parent, uh, your minor child if you're a parent, uh, literally nobody is entitled to you or your engagement with them. There, You don't owe your presence or your engagement to anybody for any reason. And I really wish that everybody could internalize that. All right, shall we? Let's do it. That was a good one. That was a really good one. I'm curious. Okay, cool. I can do that. All right. That was a fun one. I read about the four horsemen, signs of trouble in a relationship. Was this a framework that you and Jared found useful? Slash, what's your opinion on it? So this is from the Gottman research. Jared and I are smiling as we read this because I swear to God, I heard about these four horsemen more often than I cared to. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I actually, I've got to remember what all four of them are. I know contempt and stonewalling um, are two of them. and criticism. Defensiveness and criticism, okay. So the idea, so people have a little bit of background on this. Uh, John Gottman and his wife, whose name I forget, because he never really puts her name on anything. Um, the <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it doesn't. I mean, it's I mean, it's true. Um, so John Gottman runs a uh, relationship research machine in Washington and does a lot. He's done a lot of couples research over the years, and over those years he's written a bunch of books and probably the thing that everybody remembers the most from everything he's done are these four horsemen and the idea of the four horsemen is that if any one or combination of the horsemen are present in a relationship the relationship is basically doomed if you don't attend to it that it's not that your relationship is doomed if they're present it's doomed if you don't take care of them and I don't, uh, okay. It's kind of useful, okay? Like, I, I'm not going to say that it's useless. It is useful. The Like, the idea that you would be criticizing somebody or that you would hold contempt for them or that you would completely block out any communication with them, like, these are all things that are problematic processes in a relationship for sure. Whittling it down to those four things to me is a little bit oversimplified. And I also think it takes some of the context through which those four things can present themselves in a relationship out of account. And to me, chalking those things up into oversimplistic terms that people, that lay people grab onto and don't understand to the fullest extent that they should has, I think, created more problems than anything else. And so it, it creates something where a person says, well, you're stonewalling me. And then it shuts down conversations instead of, okay, so I'm not feeling heard by you and I'm perceiving you as distancing yourself from me and I don't appreciate that. Like there's a real good conversation to be had from there. From there. But I think they're useful insofar as they give us labels for problematic processes in a relationship, but they are not the de facto thing that I'm searching for and trying to like, you know, if you don't have these four things, your relationship must be fine because that ain't true at all. So I find them moderately useful, but honestly, I don't think about them much over the course of my week. I see about 20 clients a week. The last time I ever thought about the four horsemen of the, of the apocalypse was in 2015 in my graduate seminar.
Yeah, no, I, I, I like think that's completely fair. I think they, I think they are really, really good starting points for conversation. Uh, I don't think they are end all be alls. Uh, like you're saying, like, I, it, it boils it down a little bit too much for you to use it as a complete reason for something. Cause stonewalling, like I'm using stonewalling as an example. Stonewalling can be indicative of other things, but you have to kind of dive into why the stonewalling is happening. And then as you dive in, it might end up not even necessarily being stonewalling. Yeah. But that's what, that's the language that you had available. <laughs> so they are really, really good starting points. Because if somebody came into my office and was like, my partner stonewalls me. I'm not just like, oh, well, all right, cool. Here's how we solve it. I'm like, okay, what, is stone what does that mean? Like, what do you mean they're stonewalling you? What are they doing that you believe is stonewalling so that I can know? So I think, they're, I think they are really good starting points. I think it does provide a, a good set of language for you to use and try to get stuff across. But it's, it's not my Bible by any no. means whatsoever. Um, I think there was probably a point in my training where I did treat the words of Gottman as like holy, and then I, I could believe that I started doing therapy, and I was like, "Oh, there's a lot of shit going on." Uh, so uh, I'm gonna need I need a little bit more than what this is offering. Um, so I think I don't know. They're really good starting points, really good teaching tools, but there's just so much more going on than those like simple terms can can encompass. To me, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are in the same boat as love languages. Like they're oversimplified mechanisms that start conversations for lay folks, but aren't that utilitarian for therapists because we're always looking for broader context. We're not looking for like simple explanations of complex things. I'm, I'm gonna hijack this Q and A just because we're here uh i would i would love to know your thoughts on love languages because i think it is the thing that gets brought up to me the most whenever i tell somebody that i'm a therapist and i find myself rolling my eyes a lot more than i used to uh and so i'm really curious what you think about love languages i hate them hate them mm -hmm. why um, because mm. pop psychological literature and concepts are created to give people the false perception that we can whittle down the dynamics of human relationships into simple constructs. And that's not how it works. And I think people get very frustrated when we introduce what I just said, because people want easy explanations for things. It is really easy to say, I'm a physical touch person. I, I don't like gifts. I like physical touch. That's my love language. Okay. So cool. You appreciate physical touch. That's great. I'm not trying to take that away from you. But to throw the entire complexity of everything that goes into a healthy relationship where you are shown that you are loved and cared for into physical touch puts a lot of pressure on one dynamic that is so contextually loaded that it can cause problems. So you could be at some get-together with your friends and a friend could give you a bunch of shit for something that really hurts your feelings. And you just want to isolate yourself out and cry. And because your partner thinks, oh, touch is the love language. I'm going to go over and give you a hug, even though you've said to me you don't want a hug. You have now just used an oversimplified construct of a person to try to attend to them in the moment instead of actually paying attention to the context of the moment and realizing what you're supposed to do in order to show that you care. Okay, so... They are very oversimplified tools that provide a nice little tiny foundation for how do you give and receive love. 
I think it could be helpful to understand. Like, I personally don't like receiving gifts. My wife loves giving gifts. When my wife gives me a gift, I understand that that is a act of love. But it also, in some ways, it's a recognition, like, like that I can recognize that that's her showing me love. But that's not going to be the de facto end-all, be-all way that I'm going to show love. It's just relationships are too complex for that shit. Um, and I will also tell you this. The love languages have absolutely no empirical backing in any way, shape, or form. There's not, like, any, like research that I'm aware of that has actually shown that these are the love languages that humans experience in a controlled group. This is just some people threw some cool ideas out and thought, this is a really good way to help people have better engagement and understanding of their relationships. And I actually think it's counterproductive to have stuff like that out there than it is to have it out there. Or that, like, I think it's more counterproductive than it is productive for people. I'm not a fan, and I never have been. Um, I, I really, I'm frustrated by it because when people bring pop psychology into therapy, it takes like, it can take several sessions to get them to unlearn the pop psychology to then get them into the real shit that's going on. And it's such, it's so frustrating. I'm so an like, INTP that loves gift giving. And then it's like, oh God. Um, like now we have to like unlearn all of this stuff so we can actually get into the complexity of who you are. It's interesting that you say that because like I, I feel like maybe I just maybe just don't remember you doing therapy. Like it's obviously it's been a really long time since we were in grad school and I like got to see you do therapy. It's been seven but years, just buddy. Based, just based off of our communication styles. I feel like it wouldn't be that long for you to get somebody for you to get somebody to unlearn these things. Uh, so it's like really interesting to hear that that is the experience for you. Well, what you have to do, what you have to go through is a process. I guarantee you, there's at least one person watching this video right now that, as soon as I started saying that I I'm not into the love languages, probably got frustrated. Oh yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. what, but that is the, th so there's this, there's this thing that happens. It's the same thing with the MBTI. It's the same thing with any of these pop psychology things where when people have a professional tell them that something that they have overly synthesized into their conceptualization of who they are is an oversimplified non-research supported construct. That is not that's very unsettling for a person. And it sometimes creates a fear response because now it's, is this licensed person trying to tell me they know more about me than I do? And that's not what we're doing. I will, in my entire career, for the almost 10 years I've been practicing and for however many years I continue to practice, I will never claim to know a client more than they know themselves. Ever. I can have a expert perspective on something that's happening for them. I can have a theoretical or research-based conceptualization of certain the dynamics that are happening, and I can certainly articulate some of the consequences and hypothesize what it will mean for a person to continue certain dynamics. Yes, that's what people pay me for. But I will never claim to know somebody more than they know themselves. And what sucks about these constructs is they seep into who people think they are and that is threatening when somebody comes in particularly in a position of power and expertise and tells you you know that's bullshit right like it's 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 not it, it just it really creates some dissonance for people and that i think is the harder part to navigate but in working with folks around that yeah like you can move them into understanding it as a construct that has opened up certain conversations but is also a moving target. When people take the MBTI, you could take the MBTI twice in the same week and get a different result, let alone over the course of years. And so people like to take these things and go, well, that's who I am. And then they read all these explanations about, you know, what Buzzfeed says and what the MBTI itself says, this is what you are. And people go, then they confirmation bias themselves into saying, yeah, that's me. Even though those things are written in the same way astrology is written, where it's general enough that basically anybody can connect to it. And you then create this narrative for yourself that biases you into the way that you engage further. And sometimes that's to your detriment. It doesn't allow you to take the context of the moment in a given relationship into account. That's really why I don't like these things. 
because I really wish that more folks would embrace the complexity of what it is to be a human that desires relationships, if you desire relationships, as opposed to trying to whittle it down to a few constructs. Yeah, yeah. They're out there oh, yeah. to sell books. That, that's all they're there. That's 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 what they're there for. They're not there to help you understand yourself any better. And boy, have they sold some books. Yes, they have. Yes, they have. Oh, my goodness, that is yep. a that is good business right there. Yep. Uh, but yeah, no, I agree. I just wanted to, I wanted to get that out because it's I don't know it comes up all, all the, time. the time. Oh yeah. And I see so many people who are like, oh yeah, you know, my husband's this, but I'm this, and I'm like, I is, is that all the time? Like you you can change might mm -hmm. like receiving gifts at one point but then maybe you don't want a fucking gift that day and it's and it can be but that's weird what you, you said you want yeah it can also be <laughs> weird internally because if you're just like oh man i don't want gifts right now why don't i want gifts this is my love language and then you start beating yourself up because you're like oh what's going on it's just eh, yeah it's too ugh. too in there yeah